What's up, guys, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Here's what to check out on TheRinger.com as we head into the 2019 NBA All-Star Weekend. Dan Devine is writing about the five most interesting NBA teams, Shea Serrano's The Disrespectful Dunk Index returns, and Kevin O'Connor analyzes Steph Curry's evolution and how he changed the game of basketball. Also, don't forget to check out Bill Simmons' NBA trade value rankings and much more on TheRinger.com. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us. We're talking about the Atlanta rapper 21 Savage, who faces deportation to the UK a week after ICE detained him, hours before the Super Bowl. But first, have you ever read something that you knew you were going to hate, and then you read it anyways? This week, Esquire published something we both read, knowing it would probably suck. Which got us thinking, why do we hate read? Okay, so this week, like pretty much every week ever, I read something that I hated. (laughs) I heavily suspected I wouldn't like it before I read it because people I respected were criticizing it on Twitter in a way that certainly made it seem like it was poorly written and poorly thought out. And then I read it anyways. The thing that I read that I did not like was this month's Esquire editor's letter. I think it was the first time I've ever even read an Esquire editor's letter. It's a bad piece of writing for so many ways. I could probably talk about the ways in which it is bad for like three separate podcasts, but I think that would be boring. And a more interesting uh, topic of conversation that it brought up is, why did I even do this? Why do we hate read? I truly don't know. Have you been hate reading, Justin? Yes. I've been hate reading since I was a teen. What are you talking about? <laughs> you this came out of life? the womb like just <laughs> looking for reading material that you would despise? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. So one thing I noted is that you were talking about this Esquire story, which we're going to get into. But mm-hmm. you said uh, the first medium that you noted was Twitter. Yeah. Right? And it, there's something like I've been a child of the internet for a long time. I'm 31. Um, but for some reason, I do think that Twitter specifically, like the the advent of Twitter and I guess it was like 2007, really. It's mm-hmm. like Twitter comes into its own, right? I associate Twitter 2007 and onward with peak hate read. Like Twitter is the medium for spreading pieces of writing and basically promoting pieces of writing with the gusto of a publicist despite the fact that in a lot of cases, the writing that people are sharing and promoting and making go viral Mm -hmm. is writing that they don't like. Yeah, They're like, I hate this. Link, tweet. Right. Retweet, retweet. I I didn't have Twitter in the early stages, so I think I might have missed like your peak hate read phase. Oh my God. But I will, like that is how I find out about the things on the internet that upset me nowadays. I feel like we should define what a hate read is. Yeah. Because I think there are a few different genres. Right. Like this was, I guess, an ideological hate read. I just thought that his perspective on the world. Yeah, let's talk Let's yeah. talk about, let's just outline. So we're talking about two different things, really. You mm-hmm. noted, I think, rightly, right, that the, the sort of actually annoying, provocative piece of writing in question is an mm-hmm. editor's letter in yeah. the latest Esquire. 
And the editor's letter is referring to a story that I think on the internet people have convinced themselves is the real offender, which is the actual Esquire cover story about Ryan Morgan. Who's Ryan Morgan? I didn't read it. (laughs) (laughs) I did. And it's sort of like a, it's, it's a very like, I read the story and it sounded, it, the whole story reads like a Bob Dylan song. Like it's kind of like ambling and, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of like this very strange, loose meditation on like, on this teen boy mm-hmm. and like his sort of, uh, I don't know. It just reads like a long magazine feature about a teen who feels like out of place, but also feels like a teen in ways that are familiar to anyone who's ever been a teen mm-hmm. and been kind of like ill-advised and aimless and inarticulate, but also like profound in a totally childish way. Esquire build the story, but also Twitter characterized the story as like about a MAGA teen, mm-hmm. which is not really what the story feels like it's about. But uh, it's like you look at the cover photo of the boy and it, it's just the photo of this white boy. And He's not like some celebrity. So you're looking at it and it's like, okay, this is the cover of Esquire. And it it sort of has all the trappings of like a lot of stories that are explicitly about white conservatives from MAGA country. And like this kid is from West Bend, Wisconsin, which the piece goes out of its way to know mm-hmm. is like super white and that, you know, Trump has done rallies in the area or, he, you know, Trump appeared at a rally in the area at one point. And so it's sort of like it's a story that is having it both ways. It's it is both not really about Trump country. I don't think it's just sort of like a loopy, like overly literary feature story about a kid. But at the same time, it feels like it's clickbaiting a little bit to get people to think that this is like this is a thing you need to read if you want to understand real America. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's what got people into this story. What the editor's note sort of says, it argues that uh, we've devolved into this like thought police culture where you can't say what you want to say at parties anymore. And then that's why they have this story on the cover. It's just, it's very weird and sloppily argued and also just really poorly written. Like he keeps, he refers to this uh, experience of feeling like thought police are after you as Kafka-esque. Like, Kafka didn't write about the thought police, bitch. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> wow. That, that had a rare t-shirt. Um, so, yeah, it's just a bad piece of writing. And I don't know why I read it, and I don't know if it's good or bad that I read it. And that is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, right. what what is a hate read <laughs> That is good for us. What is a hate read that is bad for us? Right. And you were you were up top characterizing it as like, okay, this is if this is a subgenre of hate read, it's mm-hmm. sort of like the ideological yeah. hate read. And the thing is, like, I read plenty of stuff all the time from like uh I mean, look, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that we're both pretty liberal. Like I yeah. read conservative writers pretty frequently, right? Like I don't I want to distinguish between like disagreeing agreeing with someone, which Mm -hmm. can be like exhilarating in its own way, even in cases where you think the writer is a dipshit, right? You can still be like, no, but I get what this is. A hate read in the sort of ideological sense is Mm -hmm. when you're reading something and you not only disagree with it, 
but you think it's like profoundly stupid. It's, it's, <laughs> yes, it's, yes. It's stupid in some profound, almost like magical way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I come across those not that often, but fairly often. And and I don't, like I'm thinking right now, there was a piece about like a leftist case for closed borders that was was a classic ideological hate read for me. Okay. I don't think that these, sometimes I think it's actually good to read these even no matter how much they infuriate you. It might even be good that they exist because if people are thinking it, at least it's good that we have an opportunity to know that this is a perspective people have. Yeah, yeah. It's almost comes with a caveat of, well, look, you can't say that no one let you publish this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, look, you got this out into the world, buddy. Like, you can only complain about the thought police so much. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, like, you got your editor's note published. <laughs> it's the editor's note in Esquire. You're the editor of in Esquire, chief. Right, of Esquire. <laughs> um the weird thing about this story, though, is that the actual cover story doesn't actually read like it's in the lineage of journalism that does otherwise exist, right? Like, I think people are engaging with the Esquire cover story as if it is one of the actual New York Times stories where they send a reporter to do a, a long-form dispatch from Trump country about, like, you know, why, you know, how do Trump voters feel a year after or two years after, you know, voting for Trump and their lives have actually gotten worse? Why do they vote for this guy? Like, what did Trump voters think? I think those are the stories that are the more classic Trump yeah. era hate reads. Yes. And that, but in that kind of story, I don't know if I should be reading. I don't know if they should, if it's good that they exist at all. Cause it's well, not well, really plumbing any new ground. It's just telling us things we already know. Right. So if we're, if we're looking at that kind of hate read, right? Mm-hmm. The Trump voters, who are they? What mm-hmm. do they think? Like, I get, like, I take it that the point of those stories is to sort of address, I guess, one, it's to flatter conservatives on some level, but two, it's to address this liberal insecurity of like, what if I don't know real America? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just think that that's stupid, right? Like, I think that framing of like, what is the real DNA of America that people in New York City and Los Angeles don't understand? It's mm-hmm. like, that's the false premise of these stories mm-hmm. is that like, you know, all of these coastal liberals, it's like, look, we've all been to Panera. <laughs> we've all lived in other parts of the country, too. <laughs> the idea that, like, I've never met a Republican before yeah. until I picked up the latest issue of Esquire. I didn't realize that there would be so much Panera slander. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of, I yeah. lived in Iowa. I I briefly, I worked in the Obama campaign mm-hmm. in 2007, and they had me in Iowa, and I went to Des Moines once, and mm. I just remember thinking that there were way too many Paneras in a single American there city. There are a lot of Paneras in the Midwest, I oh will say God. that. I grew up basically eating those bread bowls. <laughs> but yeah, so so that, I guess, would be a type of hate read that's just a bad hate read. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really benefit you from reading it. It doesn't it help you refine your values. Right. Or does it? Like, what do you think? Do you think it's helpful or harmful for you to form negative opinions about these types of pieces? I think forming negative opinions is one thing. Like, uh-huh. I, it, I think it would be fine if, if, like, the New York Times published eight of those stories where they are like, why did this guy become a Nazi? Why mm-hmm. did this guy vote for Trump? 
And people were just like, oh, I don't think this story was well-constructed yeah. or I don't think its insights are new and I, I struggle to understand the rationale. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that even that is what happens. I think what happens is people read those stories. No, I think people don't even read those stories before they get mad. I think they literally read the headline and it's like a very specific phenomenon where they're filled with rage. Mm-hmm. They're filled with this just like instinctive, immediate rage. And for whatever reason, the way that they process that rage, and I think this is important, Mm -hmm. the way that they go about processing that rage is specifically by copying the link and dropping it in the tweet field, adding a caption, and sharing the story. I think that's fascinating that that is what the literal, you you can see it play out on Twitter and on social media that the way people process the rage is by sharing the story and and making sure that other people read it. And, and the, that's strange. It's me. very strange. And I, I wonder how much that process plays into more stories like right. this coming out. Because totally. like sometimes I someone was saying like that, you know, Barry Weiss is one of the most controversial New York Times columnists. Like she generates this reaction from people a right. lot. Like, I've heard people hypothesize that the New York Times basically hired her for the outrage clicks. It's weird that that's a position that one can hold in society. Right, right. (laughs) But I don't even know if I think that—do you think that's true? No. I think—well, I I think it has a kernel of truth to it. Yeah. I think that that that's probably, like, 10% of why they hired her. But also, I just think that that they think she has valid opinions and, like, I think they make— poor choices when it comes to who they think deserves a platform to share their opinions. Yeah, I think the controversial Barry Weiss. I actually think that the Times has Barry Weiss for the same reason I was just saying of like why they publish those stories, right? Which is, I do think that some mainstream media has like a counterintuitive and kind of perverse relationship to conservatism where it's like they're on the one hand, they feel distant from like hardcore Republican politics, but because they feel so distant from it, they get insecure about it. And they're mm-hmm. like, are we not taking this seriously enough? And so you you end up like hiring a troll like Barry Weiss because you're insecure in your ability to determine that Barry Weiss is a charlatan. I don't, do you think she's a troll though? I don't, okay, tro- you're right. I don't think she's a troll, but I don't think that she's like a strong thinker. I think she's mm-hmm. like a, junior communications aide mm-hmm. for like the NRSC or something. Like, I don't think she writes like somebody who has interesting ideas about anything. She just seems like kind of a, I think Barry Weiss has a lot of like two dimensional, like what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost kind of like glib mm-hmm. opinions. Yeah. That, I think glib is a good term. Yeah. It's like basically she's really adept at, putting sort of the thoughts of the average, like, conversation on the Joe Rogan podcast into a New York Times-appropriate column form and then, like, serving it up. Right, which is another way of saying that she's, like, part of the apparatus of mainstreaming the Joe Rogan podcast, right? (laughs) The Joe Rogan podcast being, like, a place where Milo Yiannopoulos and Kanye West go to not make sense. Did Milo go on it? I don't know. Yeah, Milo's been on Rogan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also another kind of hate read that I think is, I I also don't know how I feel about it, basically, which is like the genre of 
like lifestyle. Oh, let's uh, this. Yeah, yeah, it's like ref- <laughs> like people. Refinery Twenty Nine does this Money Diaries. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think a few other websites do it too, but that's like the most famous one. And then the New York Times has like a lot. Basically, its entire real estate section could be considered <laughs> a hate read. But they do this series where they go with people. People explain like why they rented the space that they rented, and it's always they're always paying like. $9,000 for a one bedroom in the West Village. And they're like, I think one person like literally worked for Facebook and had a hobbyist uh, like ceramics painting. They're just Jesus. like caricatures of right. of er, yuppies. Yeah. Um, I always think of those headlines that are like, Oh, uh, I lived on, I, you know, I went a month living on a budget of $10,000 a day. Yeah. It's like, what the, what is this? And those, I think, are actually great journalism mm-hmm. because they, sh- even though they're infuri- they are sometimes infuriating to read and like make the reader feel contempt above all other right. emotions. But I think that they're documenting how certain types of people, like I do think that they have value because they're showing, they're pulling the curtain from like how people are actually living their lives. Right. They're definitely helpful for examining how class operates in America. Right. Totally. That's like what I think of when I think of a good hate read, which I'm is like sometimes I feel bad about the contempt that I feel when I'm reading it because I, I don't like to think of myself as a contemptuous person, but I'm definitely I think it has like value and I don't really feel guilty about reading it because I feel like I'm learning something about like society. Right. Um, I, I just get frustrated because I don't like to see – I think it would be one thing if we were just talking about the rabble being mm-hmm. mad at a piece of writing. But I, so many times it's like the way I'll see it play out is journalists will be the people especially to sort of dogpile these pieces of writing. And that is frustrating because journalists, if no one else – totally understand how this pipeline works. They totally mm-hmm. understand like an editor's logic in commissioning that piece in the first place. They totally understand the idea that like hate clicks are clicks too. Mm-hmm. And yet they do, like they do it despite everything they know about web journalism and journalism in general. They share these pieces. And I both understand a lot of the factors that would lead somebody to be upset with the state of media and like media incentives. Mm-hmm. But it's just hard to take. It's harder to take people seriously when you see them get legitimately furious <laughs> at the drop of like a like a hat. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. Every time I, I mean, I'm not I'm not on Twitter anymore, partially because of stuff like this. But yeah. it's like, yeah. Whenever those episodes of hate sharing of like hate nuclear fusion play out, I just think. No one looks good reacting to these things in this way. Like, I totally get not liking, I don't know, some Kevin Williamson column or, like, an Esquire cover story. But it's, like, there has to be a different way to process this Mm -hmm. because this is inane. (laughs) Agree. That's why I still have Twitter, but I don't – I honestly, I have to make a conscious effort, which is embarrassing, but I I won't – Share things that I hate, right, or that I dislike, and I and, and but sharing also mm-hmm. includes to me screenshotting, which is I like don't one do that way. Pe- yeah, but I, I'm just saying like yeah. that's one way people rash. I in the past like few years, one way people have come to rationalize it mm-hmm. is they won't share the link. What they used to do is share these like do not link things where you can share a link, but with that with in a way that if you click through it, it won't actually count toward the web traffic. Yeah, but yeah, now what people do is screenshot articles. 
and they share that. And that's their way of being like, well, I'm not sending traffic to the New York Times, even though I'm shitting on the New York Times. I think that's basically the same thing. Um, yeah, just there has to be a different way for people to process disgust and disagreement <laughs> and rage on the Internet. I do want to offer the large caveat at the end here that like even with money diaries, for instance, mm -hmm. I think the problem is that for every one of those pieces that you see on on the Internet where it's like, well, God, the, like, there's such a contemptuous point of view writing this thing but I guess I'm glad it exists on some level as anthropology, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. But it's like, it's media and it's such a competitive field and there's so much little money to go around that it is easy to look at it and say, for every one of these pieces that exists, a piece from somebody who is maybe underrepresented mm -hmm. in media doesn't exist. Like for every time an editor commissions that kind of piece, an angel loses its wings. It's <laughs> basically how I would think about it. And if you think about it that way, mm -hmm. then yeah, I do understand being like, like one of the ways people argued against the Esquire story was it's Black History Month. Yeah. What is Esquire doing about Black History Month? What, what are they writing about black people this month? They're writing about this kid instead. How much did that story cost and what could that have gone to alternatively? The ways that newspapers and magazines allocate resources mm -hmm. and who they're paying and who they're shining a light on, that stuff matters. And in that case, yeah, I don't really know why I'm reading this story about this random white kid from Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that is a, a fair critique. Okay, so we'll put that in the in the category of bad hate reads officially. And I wanted to actually end this section by asking our listeners something. Uh, is hate listening to podcasts a thing? Please let me know. Yeah, please let us know. And if you hate listening to this podcast, okay, I'm fine with that. Keep yeah, going. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> keep, uh, rewind. Yeah. Rewind it. Listen to it at half speed mm -hmm. so you can really milk the rage. Listen to all the ad breaks. Just, just run those ads back. <laughs> let me tell you. Just do it. Trump border policies and ICE which happened right before his arrest. Here's this famous musician a lot of people have heard of who wasn't bothered until, take a look. Been through some things, but I couldn't imagine my kids stuck at the border. Flint still need water. People was innocent, couldn't get lawyers. Kids stuck at the border, people was innocent, quote, couldn't get lawyers soon enough, arrested by ICE in this, in this big public display. He needed a Kate, lawyer. do you listen to rap music? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that the Atlanta rapper 21 Savage, born Shea bin Abraham Joseph, is actually British. This is like a legitimately surprising thing. They're, they're, I mean, 21 Savage is popular, right? He's popular. He is like very primarily associated with Atlanta, right? With Atlanta. Um, but yeah, it he turns doesn't out, have a British accent. Right. He <laughs> certainly does not have a British accent. You know, he's a trap rapper. But it turns out he was born in London, uh, where his father and I believe his twin sisters currently live. And he moved from England to Georgia with his mother at around age seven. Uh, his mother entered the U.S. with a work visa, which eventually expired. Uh, and we only learned all of this. We only learned that 21 Savage is actually British because ICE the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, arrested 21 Savage uh, the morning before the Super Bowl. They disputed his residency status. They put out a press release. They gave some statements to a few publications. 
and they basically scheduled a, uh, an immigration hearing um, to potentially deport Twenty One Savage. He's getting deported, right? Yeah, he has a he has a date. He has a like an April it's date so, so for crazy. hearing. Um, I mean, look, we have opinions about ICE, and we can mm-hmm. talk about them. You know, ICE is a divisive and controversial agency in the grand scheme of American immigration policy. This story is weird because 21 Savage is literally an actively popular rapper. He, he released a number one album less than a month ago. He's got a hit song a lot near the top of the Hot 100 chart right now. <laughs> and he was actually scheduled to perform alongside Post Malone at the Grammys this past weekend. I should note that at the Grammys, 21 Savage was nominated for Record of the Year. So on Wednesday morning, 21 Savage gets released on Bond. And like I said, he's got, he's scheduled for an April 11th appearance in immigration court. And it seems quite possible that he will be deported to the United Kingdom. Let's talk about the story a little bit because it's kind of, it's kind of wild to think about this. So a really strange thing about this story is that when it first broke, I should say I was on vacation when this story broke. Uh, it was the Super Bowl. Yeah, I was in Hong Kong. You missed the news cycle. I, I missed the news cycle. Except I I saw that there were initially all of these tweets where people were really fixating on the fact that, wait, what? 21 Savage is British? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sort of lent this story a really silly, humorous dimension mm-hmm. of people making memes and jokes about 21 Savage and like like basically trying to recontextualize him as like some sort of British lord. <laughs> um, and I mean, I look, I think a lot of that stuff actually was and is legitimately funny. Like I, you know, it's as much as like it, it very, this story very quickly transformed into a very serious, somber story about immigration mm-hmm. and like hardline anti-immigration policy. I do want to at the top Declare yeah. my stance that it is objectively funny to find out that a rapper that you sort of associated with these like very dominant American conventions turns out to be Slick Rick. Secret basically. British. <laughs> secret British. Se- secret British rapper is an objectively funny plot. For sure. But it just, I, that was the thing that people were focusing on more than the fact that he was being horrifically detained. Right, right. Totally. And he was detained, I should say, he, he was detained in like a sting operation. Because initially I remember thinking that like, oh, was this a, he was riding with someone mm-hmm. and got pulled over. But then ICE later clarified that, and I'm going to read, I'll read the, I'll read their language. They say they arrested him in a targeted operation with federal and law enforcement partners. This is such a psychotic waste of our resources. There's a lot of things it's, wrong with it, but it's just, that is one of them. There are so many problems the government could be fixing. They're doing a sting operation to deport someone. Right. Someone who has been an American since he was a kid. Right, that's the thing we should really stress, too, is that, like, 21 Savage is relatively young, and he was literally a minor when he entered the United States. This gets to a lot of the contention and a lot Mm -hmm. of the language of the Trump administration and talking about chain migration, as it were, and... Um, the DREAM Act and and things like that, where Mm -hmm. you're not just talking about, like as much as sort of the, I think, conservative party lines are about people coming to the country uh, illegally. It's like, look, you're also talking about a lot of people who 
weren't even the conscious actors of coming to this country. And in so much as you might deport them, you're deporting them to a place that they by no means would call like their home. Mm-hmm. Although, I, like I said at the top, 21 Savage has other family in London currently. But Atlanta is his home. Right. Atlanta is his home. He is a... He's, he's an a Ameri- small he's businessman. He's an American. He is. Whatever his, <laughs> right. whatever his right. legal status is, he's clearly an American. Right. That is correct. It's such a strange story to me. So, like, we, we covered the fact that people were sort of initially amused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in... What I thought was remarkable about it was that I would say maybe an hour into people being amused, there was this sort of pronounced second wave of people being like, you know, it's really not funny. And people joking about it just really don't. And it's it's like I bo- I get where those people are coming from. And I think several days after the initial arrest, I mm-hmm. think people have all rallied around the idea or, you know, 21 Savage fans and rap fans have rallied around the idea that this is a serious thing and this is really fucked up. Yeah. But it was interesting to see those two tones competing with each other. The first wave of this is hilarious, this guy is secretly British, and people being like, this is a a capital S, capital I serious issue. Mm -hmm. The next step is you have have 21 Savage in ICE custody. The Super Bowl goes on while this is happening. The Super Bowl itself is weird because, you know, in the early stages of planning the halftime show, uh... The NFL was struggling with the fact that they were apparently in talks with like a lot of different rappers and pop singers and R&B singers who are black to potentially perform. And a lot of them didn't want anything to do with the Super Bowl halftime show because of how the NFL has treated Colin Kaepernick and other players who have mm-hmm. protested uh, at games. And so you have that context for a lot of people going into the Super Bowl, playing out against the arrest of 21 Savage and sort of like, and mind you, the Super Bowl being hosted in Atlanta Mm -hmm. this year. And you move on from the Super Bowl, which is when when the initial arrest happens, to the Grammys, which were this past weekend. Now, the Grammys are interesting because 21 Savage is nominated for Record of the Year, and he's also supposed to perform. And he's supposed to perform with Post Malone. Noted white rapper Post Malone. <laughs> um, and instead, Post Malone ends up performing with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Did he? I didn't watch yeah, the he, he performs with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's a bad performance. He's like wearing, in, in the classic, like Post Malone is sort of a dipshit way. Like he's wearing a 21 Savage shirt in support. Mm-hmm. But like he doesn't really say anything about any of this. You know, no one really is... I don't know if there was a moment where I thought would that would maybe rally around and maybe have some like someone stand up and say something about this situation about a rapper who's literally nominated and was supposed to be at the ceremony. I thought it would be the Grammys. And instead, the Did main no thing, one say anything. I I don't know if maybe no one said anything. I just know that the biggest the biggest sort of statement coming out of the Grammys was Drake complaining about the Grammys on stage at the Grammys. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But I do want to give credit. As it stands, Jay-Z mm-hmm. is apparently bankrolling like 21 Savage's legal team going into his April immigration hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Jay and Beyonce, they end up playing this role a lot. Um, they are the sort of 
civil rights benefactors of like the hip hop wing of the civil rights movement. <laughs> and JJ seems to be playing that role with regard to 21 Savage. But mm-hmm. otherwise, it's sort of like this so far, at least almost feels like the inverse of when Meek Mill got sent back to jail. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I would say that Meek Mill is sort of the the immediate predecessor uh, to 21 Savage in terms of um a rapper highlighting rapper. the systemic injustice in America. Totally, yeah. totally. But I don't know. There's something very strange about how 21 Savage is sort of taking shape. Because for one, he's a strange rapper for this to happen to, right? He— I don't know that much about him. He is a very, I would say, very distinctly understated guy. Mm-hmm. He is, he, you know, some would say he's monotone. I think he has a very— stylistic like understatement about him Mm -hmm. he's just very decidedly like low-key like you contrast that with meek mill meek mill to the point where this used to be the joke about meek mill meek mill is like a very loud um he's just like a very loud presence and has a very loud voice in his music at least Mm -hmm. and so you sort of see how he becomes this hip-hop underdog who ends up leading a certain fight for criminal justice reform. Whereas like 21 Savage is so the inverse of that. 21 Savage seems so much like a spiritual recluse in a way. And again, it's like the dimension of the story where we secretly found out that he's a British citizen have created this like distraction and <laughs> in, in even understanding what the hell is happening. <laughs> uh, I hope he gets a chance to do what Meek Mill has done. Right. And- advocate for people in his situation. Right. I hope he gets a chance to do it from this country and not from England. Right, right. I There's like no nothing good about this story. I do hope that it draws attention to what the immigration situation in America is right now, that someone who grew up here could be potentially sent to a country that they aren't really from. Right. It's just so unfair and draconian and disturbing. I hope that, yeah, I I hope that this incident at least brings attention to what a mess our our policies are. One thing I think that is quite interesting about the story itself, how people react to the story, how people contextualize it, Mm -hmm. is this sense that ICE targeted— 21 sat like basically we're, we're all trying to figure out like why this happened mm-hmm. the line ice would give you is well it happened because he overstayed a visa and that's against the law mm-hmm. right like sure th- that's maybe the the pretext but i'm saying okay but why did you of all the people that ice targets why did they target 21 savage yeah he's a you know it's like they're to make a point, I would say. Right, that's the thing. It's yeah. like, was it politically motivated? Like, he, like 21 Savage is black. He's part of a, a black musical tradition where people are, like, predominantly critical of the Trump administration. 21 Savage himself has been critical of conservatives and critical of Trump. Mm-hmm. But not, not in a way like a Kendrick Lamar is, right? Like, Kendrick Lamar is critical of... You I'm know, sure white they people in de- Trump deport in a very, him if they could. Well, if they right, but it's you know, a Kendrick Lamar is critical of Trump and of conservatives in a very, let's say, thought leadery way. Mm-hmm. In this way, that's very um, that feels very curated and deliberate and very like 
designed for like a lecture hall, whereas like 21 Savage is not even that. And yet it's tempting to look at this whole situation and be like, is this politically motivated? And I, I don't even know what to make of that. Like that's how inscrutable ICE is to me. Yeah. He's high profile enough. The guy is literal like hit records and like a number one album on the charts. Yeah. So whatever backlash ICE is getting about this story, it's like, yeah, but this has to be why you targeted this guy in the first place. It's not like you rolled up in this guy and he just happened to be like, you're investigators. Like you clearly know who this guy is. There has to have been like a political design in doing this. Even if it's not, Trump is like, you know that 21 Savage, but we got to get him out of the country. Like, I don't think it happened like that. No, I don't but, think Trump probably knew who he was. Right. But I just wonder what ICE thought would happen politically for doing this. Like, I, I don't really necessarily understand what they think that they would accomplish by deporting 21 well, Savage. I think one thing that it gets across is that no one is safe who doesn't have the correct documentation like this is an example that they're not going to give you a pass if you are rich or famous right so i think it's to instill more fear into a community of people who don't have their documentation in order right it's horrible right it's just i think it's to make people more afraid it is to make people more afraid but it just seemed the thing that makes it seem so ill-advised is as you make people more afraid you've obviously just reinforced all of the public backlash to ICE, though. Mm -hmm. Like, people are more afraid, and thus, you're going to have more people sympathetic to the abolish ICE cause, right? Mm -hmm. Which has become this, like, again, yet another divisive point in American politics where increasingly more, even, like, normie-ass Democrats Mm -hmm. are rallying behind Abolish ICE, whereas you have, like, the Trump administration, which is, like, these people are saints. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's interesting. It's like, sure, if if your mission is to make people more fearful, mission accomplished, but you've also just made it, it it seems like the weirdest instance of uh, an institution just courting more and more reasons for people to doubt its legitimacy, mm-hmm. you know? And to, to to destabilize its own, like, political existence in the long term. Like, yeah, he's literally a face of Abolish ICE now. Like, yeah. that's, you, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you are ruining or attempting to ruin this kid's life, but also you're turning him into a martyr. And a martyr who whose lawyer's being paid by Jay-Z. So, it's, you know what I mean? Like, he has, like... A martyr with deep pockets. <laughs> a martyr with deep pockets. Ice is just such a deeply strange... Like, I see all the time conservatives argue that liberals have this very overblown, almost, like, highly dramatized sense of what Trump's America is even like and, like, this sort of more rigid authoritarian impulses of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. But ICE is one of the few things that you look at and you're like, no, it's it's this deeply overactive, chaotic, disturbing agency (laughs) that acts acts in ways that, like you say, seem designed to just make people feel fearful, whether they've even done any actual, like, material crimes. You know what I mean? It's like you you, want to make people feel fearful for the fact that their mom moved 
to the United States however many years ago. That's the thing you want people to feel. You want people who live in the United States to feel fearful about. Mm -hmm. That is, if nothing else. It's Obama's (laughs) America too, though. Right, yes. He was was a huge deporter and had a very conservative stance on immigration. But it, I mean, Trump has taken it to the next level with his, like, just direct and vocal animosity towards people who don't have American citizenship. Absolutely. Absolutely. That context is, like, super helpful. Trump did not invent. No. (laughs) Prohibitive. He just took it to the next level. He took, well, he took policy to the next level. And again, he took that, like, fearfulness. Yeah. He injected it with this, like, animus against immigrants that's definitely damaging (laughs) additionally damaging right but yeah i think it's kind of i think it's important to remember that this this didn't just start with trump i think that actually because sometimes people will argue that it's all about opposing trump instead of opposing his policies but this is a policy that deserves opposition no matter who was enforcing it right totally well, like I said, he, he 21 Savage has an immigration hearing in April. Who knows? Maybe Esquire will cover it. Maybe they'll write a cover story about it. We'll see. We'll see. All right, I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. That's been Damage Control for this week. Thanks for listening. You'll hear from us again two weeks from now. <laughs>